gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Sorry about the cough. Is uh, I'm, I'm I test negative for COVID now, uh, but I still have a little bit of the crud left over. Um, thanks for all the nice notes from people and all that kind of stuff. I feel like every week I got to say all these thank you for being so nice and kind and generous and whatever, and your thank you for your concern and yada yada yada. I don't want to sound ungrateful. I'm just tired of being in a position where people feel like they need to send me notes saying they feel sorry um, or they're, you know, sending condolences or whatever. But yeah, 2022 has not been a an awesome year. I use a more colorful phrasing of this, but as I was um, telling a friend yesterday, um, it's like uh, 2022 is a proctologist and it refused to take off its uh, high school graduation ring, um, before the exam. Anyway, I'm in a fairly upbeat mood in that I am, I, I have the, the lights at the end of the tunnel. I am leaving next week, uh, for this trip to, uh, Istanbul and to London. I'm very excited about it. Um, I'm also excited just to feel a little physically better. Um, although the next few days is going to be kind of wild. So CNN, I was not laid off, everybody, uh, but um, CNN's not had these layoffs, and um, it was funny. So uh, Pod texts me on, I guess, Wednesday night around 5 o'clock saying, hey, man, are you okay with this CNN? And I was like, I guess so. I think so. What are you talking about? And he sends me this, this article about how CNN was doing layoffs, and they were going to... Um, notify everybody by close of business on, I guess, again, I think this was Wednesday. And so he texted me around five o'clock and assumed I would have heard one way or the other by then. And I, this is the first I heard that layoffs were even happening. My condolences and sympathies to everybody who gets laid off. That sucks. Uh, there are some good people who were, were losing their jobs. And um, so I forwarded this article to my my agent and I was like, anything I should know? And he calls me right away and says, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then he says, yeah, you were on my list of people to tell, my list of clients to tell you were fine. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. And he was super apologetic about it. And um, I asked him, it's like, hey, but like, could they actually fire me? You know, just like summarily like that, even though I have a contract? And he's like, well, I mean, they'd have to pay out your contract. You'd get the full amount that they're paying you, you just wouldn't be on TV for like a year and a half. And I was like, huh, could you call them back? <laughs> um, and I don't want to sound ungrateful to CNN. They're, they've treated me very nice. They've been very, very um, accommodating during all this stuff with my mom. And um, and everybody treats me pretty well over there. And um, But uh, the prospect of like, being paid not to be on TV for a long period of time is kind of attractive. Um, particularly so since this is how I got on this. Next week, I am going to be... So they wanted me to do election night coverage from midnight to 5 a.m. on Tuesday night. And I want to be a team player. And I was like, 
if that's what you need, you know, I personally don't feel like there's gonna be that much interest in the Georgia runoff, but okay. Um, you know, um, but the only problem is, is that on Wednesday I'm flying to Chicago for a speech and, um, and then I leave from Chicago from Europe and the idea of doing an all nighter before the speech, um, I don't, I don't really deal well with sleep deprivation. And so, uh, they worked it out. So I'm going to be in New York instead. I'm going to go up to New York for the day on Tuesday um, and do CNN from like four to six, and then come back to DC, go to bed, leave in the morning, blah, 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 blah. I had to rearrange a whole bunch of stuff, but this is, this is much better. And so anyway, it's going to be a busy week. We're going to try and cram in some um, remnants so I don't have to do guests, guest hosts for the entire time I am gone. Uh, Special shout out to Scott Lincecum. We were supposed to do a live in studio recording on his new book um, on Tuesday, but he agreed to reschedule and we'll do it virtually. Anyway, I don't know that anybody cares about any of this housekeeping, but I am just trying to like wake up a little bit. So where to begin? Um, um, bah, 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 bah. I don't know. Um, I'll start with what I wrote about on um, in the Wednesday G file, which if you were a... Uh, um, paid member of the dispatch community you would have had in your email box already. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I still am not like anti Elon Musk, but Musk is becoming one of these figures that either is, is a lot like Trump, right? You have to either be pro Musk or, or anti Musk. And, um, and I guess I'm a little, it's not so much that I'm anti-anti-Musk. Um, I, he definitely bothers me. I don't, I, I think it is, his management style of Twitter is self-indulgent and irresponsible and is sort of a um, case study of the kind of thing that, um, you know, uh, Yuval writes about with this whole, you know, what is your role here as an institution? You know, and, I think it's the level of self-indulgence and using it as a personal platform to show off on is um, really silly. It's less offensive given that there aren't shareholders that he's screwing, right? I mean, he owns the company, so he can do things with it that I would find, if he was doing the same thing at a publicly held company um, where, uh, you know, he was screwing the investors and screwing the, the shareholders, it would be a little different, but, uh, you know, he's free to, to, to screw around with it. What I really didn't like, what I really don't like is, um, I guess, I guess one way to put it is I'm, my attitude towards him is a little bit sort of like, um, um, my attitude towards masks during the more asinine parts of COVID. Um, you know, and I know some listeners got tired of me saying that I'm, I'm not pro mask, but, and I'm not anti-mask either. Um, I just find, I found that people who were deeply, deeply invested either way on the mask issue um, were kind of asinine. And um, uh, and that's sort of how I feel about, about Elon Musk these days. Um, if you can't see his flaws, you're the one in a bubble. And if you can't see his attributes, you're kind of in a bubble. Um but I think it's a tragedy in some ways, given how important the other stuff that he does is that he's so friggin' distracted by Twitter. Um, 
but he's allowed to burn through his own money. And um, my own view about Twitter, by the way, is it's kind of crappy, but as you know, I pay attention to it and I have fun with it. And mostly it's dog tweets these days. But um, I really think, you know, I think my credentials as being pro market are pretty good, but um, I think it would have been better for Twitter and for the country if they had simply followed like the Craigslist model or the Wikipedia model, Wikipedia model would be even better. Um, but you know, like what ruins so many publications or platforms or media companies or whatever, which is something that, you know, Steve and I went into fighting against very, you know, passionately and philosophically, um, is this chase after huge returns as quickly as possible, the sort of 10x model. And Twitter has never been very successful. It's never been a big tech company the way like Facebook or Apple are. But it's always wanted to have valuations like an Apple or a Facebook. And so it kept chasing new sort of models, new sort of uh, gimmicks to be more than it really was, which is sort of, a you know, a perfectly serviceable, small little chat thing. And I think if it had stuck, if it, if it didn't, if they just created some sort of 501c3 foundation early on and let it just be that, it would have been better. Um, and so, like, not everything, you know, not everything encouraged by free enterprise and capitalism is good. Um, you know, you need certain things in certain lanes. Anyway, um, the thing that really bothers me about Musk's approach is this uh, thing where he knows what the results of his polls are going to be. I don't know if uh, I'm totally agnostic about whether or not he's, he manipulates them or he, he, he there are he knows about bots that are going to vote in them or he just simply knows um, how they're going to turn out or has a good guess on how they're going to turn out. Um, before he launches them or whatever, but, you know, he does these polls, should Donald Trump come back on Twitter? And then the poll wins 52 to 48, and he he says, so shall it be done, um, Vox Populi, Vox Day, which is this uh, very old proverb, very stupid proverb that translates as uh, the voice of the people is the voice of God. And... Um, I'm not a theologian, but I, I put it to everybody out there, prove me wrong. Uh, there is no, and I, I have asked around a little bit, uh, there is no theological grounding for this in Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's any, maybe there's some weird cult that this is, that, that believes this or some uh, fr fringe Gnostic tribe, but broadly speaking, it just runs counter to everything we know about biblical teaching. It's kind of ludicrous, the idea that um, a simple majority of opinion among any given population is the voice of God. Um, and I find he's maybe he's being tongue in cheek or maybe there's some video game reference to it that I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, but uh, it's but there are a couple of things that bother about me. First of all, I think it's kind of, you know, blasphemous is sort of the wrong um, word. It's just stupid, right? I mean, as on a, on a sort of theological, biblical ground, it's kind of ignorant. 
Um, and part where it gets closer to blasphemous is that it's it's his decision still, right? He can say, hey, you know, 52.3% of my customers wanted this, so I'm going to do it. Um, but if you say Vox Populi Vox Day in that formulation, you're God answering to the people, which is kind of creepy and weird. Um, but also, that's not how actual businesses are supposed to make decisions. Um, you know, if if you have 52% of your customer base is passionately believes one thing and 48% passionately believes another thing, it's kind of stupid to piss off 48% of your audience and claim you had no choice. Um, the choice is still his. Uh, he's still the decider on this kind of thing. And, um, and just, it's, there's a certain kind of Pontius Pilate kind of intellectual dishonesty to it, uh, that I find really sort of irksome. Um, but anyway, the, the main point of the G file was that, um, uh, I thought it was kind of funny how, um, I don't know if this is the main point, but this was the, the setup for it. You know, Dinesh the other day tweeted that, uh, the real suggested he's just asking questions, right? I mean, because you know Dinesh wouldn't actually say anything terrible. He just raises the possibility of terrible things, and then when called on it, um, says, "Hey, I was just asking questions." So he said something along the lines of, "I wonder if the real reason why um, so much of the left is attacking is is screaming bloody murder about Elon Musk letting um, uh, you know taking over Twitter is that uh, Musk is shutting down." Um, all of these pedophile accounts, and that will take away a large amount of the cultural left's power. Now, I think the whole pedophile groomer thing, who hates pedophiles? Who hates pedophilia? This guy, right? I, I'm not defending pedophilia in the slightest, but this is obviously, to me, a pretty profound and obvious moral panic um, being ginned up to scare people doesn't mean that some of their examples aren't disturbing, like that, that fashion company's photo spread with these kids in bondage was disgusting. Um, I think, you know, you know, these, you know, drag shows for little kids are grotesque, um, all that kind of stuff. I have no problem complaining about. But this idea that, you know, vast swaths of the cultural left today are pedophiles and groomers and all that kind of stuff. It's it's boob bait and it's 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 uh, it's a kind of cultural McCarthyism that I just find kind of tiresome and grotesque, um, and it does slander a lot of just like normal gay people who aren't interested in any of that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, uh, um, the reason why I thought it was kind of amusing and worth paying attention to because I normally ignored Nash, even though you know I, we used to be pretty friendly. Um, is that uh, like one of these other polls that Musk did where he ended up saying the people have spoken Vox Day, Vox Populi or Vox Populi, Vox Day, whatever, um, was going to allow uh, Milo Yiannopoulos uh, back onto Twitter. And Milo is like one of the only culturally prominent figures, and I use the word prominent advisedly, uh, of the last half decade or so who actually spoke openly in favor of the gay grooming of underage boys. 
Um, and that's, you know, kind of one of the things that got him pelted from the public stage. But by all means, let's have that account back because, you know, what, what Elon's really, what Elon Musk is really doing is closing down, you know, pedophile accounts, whatever. Um, and that just sort of gets me into this larger point about how, you know, this is the, you know, I, I used to go around saying, probably wrote it in 10 different columns, sent on TV all the time. Uh, Charles Krauthammer used to quote me about it, about how this whole Trump thing was going to end in tears no matter what. And part of my argument was, therefore, you should stick to your guns and not, like, just join the mob in the sense, or join the crowd in the sense, in the hope that if everybody gets on board, it won't end badly. And uh, it's ended badly, right? I mean, it's not, it's not completely over yet, but the thing that is so sad to me is, like, it's cha- the, the, the Trumpification of the right has changed a lot of people. Dinesh can't go back to being a serious, reasonable person. Um, so many of these people can't go back um, to who they were. Um, um, not fully, not completely. And some, because of their business interests and the rest, don't want to go back. But like a lot of the people who were red-pilled, um, it changed their DNA, as it were, to extend the metaphor. And like they can't just like cure themselves of it or go cold turkey. And um, it's very sad to me. Um, and anyway, that was what the G-File was about. I guess it should bring up this thing. I've been, I've been trying to figure out how to articulate this. You know, in the wake of the midterms, there's been a lot of talk. I've written about it, about how, you know, the GOP is starting to come to grips with itself and starting to, you know distance itself from Trump and, you know, they're not huge profiles and courage out there. I was saying this on the dispatch podcast, you know, you know, Mike Pompeo tweeting stuff clearly aimed at Trump, but refusing to name Trump, you know, like, you know, bold man, really bold, but intellectually and politically, I understand that this is sort of the way it has to be. Um, you know, you don't go around rubbing it in the face of, vast numbers of your voters that they made terrible choices um, that, you know, they voted for terrible candidates on purpose in the primaries in 2022, forget Trump, right? Um, uh, um, that the, the sort of self-indulgent populist jackassery that is so popular out there is dumb and politically suicidal. And um, you can't, can't rub it in their faces. You kind of got to give them some room to save face and say, okay, let's try something different. And, you know, and you can't tell people they voted wrong in 2016 and 2020. Um, I get that. Right. I mean, uh, that's the way politics works. And, um, you know, the sort of baby steps of healing, you know, where you watch Mike Pence and these various guys criticize Trump tepidly, reservedly, mm-hmm. Um, you know, more in sorrow than in anger and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's the way you get out. I mean, I, I think it was Charlie Cook who first made this point about how Reagan didn't go around in the 1970s crapping all over Richard Nixon and Watergate and all that. He just looked to the future and, and moved forward. And, you know, that was one of the reasons he came up with that whole 11th commandment of thou shalt not speak ill of another Republican. Um, and that's smart politics. I get it. I think analytically that's correct. Um, but personally, um, I struggle with it a little bit and, um, it's hard to, 
explain without sounding self-indulgent, right? And that's fine. But like this podcast, I talk to people as if I'm actually talking to them in person. And um, I think if you listen to me in context, you understand that I'm making a distinction here between what I think is the smart political position or the smart, you know, uh, you know, analytical understanding of all of this and where my own personal feelings go. And so how to explain this. All right, so I wrote in a G file a couple of weeks ago, I don't know, three weeks ago, about how um, there's this weird thing in how we're wired, how our culture works. When I say our culture, I should just say human culture because I think this is probably a human universal where we are, for all the talk about populism and elites and all this kind of stuff, we are wired, it seems to me, to be more concerned about the fate or the honor or the prestige of, of elites, of famous people, of leaders, right? Or however, you know, whatever term you want for it, than we are for like normal people. When a plane goes down with one famous person on it, we'll say, you know, um, a plane with Buddy Hackett along with 37 other people died in a plane crash. Buddy Hackett didn't die in a plane crash. I'm just using a name that won't offend anybody. Um, you see it in, it basically, it's, the, it's a rule in pretty much every movie and TV show, you know, in, in Game of Thrones, Star Trek, whatever. The, you know, if, if one of the guys in Star Trek with the red shirt, you know, one of the security officers croaks, everyone's upset for about 30 seconds and then the show goes on, right? You know, it's not like they're throwing wakes and, you know, tearing their shirts and gnashing their teeth for the entire episode. But you know that if Spock died, right, or if McCoy were murdered, um, it would be this profoundly different sort of reaction. How many, like, henchmen, guards, uh, you know, uh, soldiers in every movie and TV show with henchmen, guards, soldiers, whatever, die, and the audience just goes, oh, okay, it's like a video game. But then one of, if one of the principals dies, you're like, oh, my God. You know, like how many of Ned Stark's uh, bodyguards died um, that no one cared about? But when Ned Stark goes, um, people completely freak out, right? I think this is sort of part of our wiring. And um, we get emotionally invested in, in leaders and avatars of our cause kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, you think about it in terms of like things like foreign policy. Believe me, I'm, I'm going to get to my point. In things like foreign policy, you know, it is just morally obvious to me that the world would be better off if we killed Vladimir Putin. Um, I shouldn't say that. The world would be better off if Vladimir Putin were killed or died. But to assassinate a foreign leader is like a big friggin' deal, right? So as a consequentialist matter, it wouldn't necessarily be better off. It's a very risky thing to do. The point is, is that people would take killing Vladimir Putin really, 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 really seriously, but they don't take very seriously the killing of tens of thousands of Russian soldiers or, you know, of Russian dissidents who were pushed out windows and stuff. And we kind of treat the, the main characters in our international um, uh, affairs as if they're the only fully realized moral actors and everybody else is just sort of a 
plot device to move things along. But if you're, you know, the wife or husband or son or daughter of a someone who's been murdered by Putin, you care more about that person in real life um, than you ever care about Putin or Biden or, or any sort of famous person, right? I mean, we all intuitively, I think, understand what I'm getting at in the sense that in your own life, you care more about your spouse, your kids, your friends than you do about, you know, these famous people on TV. And anyway, I, it's been in my head for a while, which brings me back to this point about like sort of the moving on thing. I get why a lot of politicians behaved the way they did in 2015, 2016 through 2020 or through 2022, whatever. Um, I get why they all bent the knee. I get why they all sucked up to Trump and all this kind of stuff. I get to the extent I can, you know, why Lindsey Graham behaves the way he behaves. And the, the thing is, is like, it makes it difficult for me to sort of, again, on a personal level, sort of just forgive and forget all of it, is that why is Lindsey Graham's career more important than mine or my wife's or my various friends, you know, and all that kind of stuff? Like, what objective criteria says the world needs what Lindsey Graham does so much that we should forgive. And I'm just picking on Lindsey Graham because it's an easy and obvious example. I don't have a huge amount of animosity towards Lindsey Graham. Um, I mean, I have some, but, you know, whatever. Uh, very nice guy in person. Um, but what is it about politicians that says, that requires me to be so forgiving of them knowingly doing the wrong thing um, and I get, you know, this is a point, you know, Rich always used to say this, uh, quoting, um, Bill Rusher, longtime publisher of National Review, I've quoted a bunch of times on here, uh, you know, politicians will always disappoint you. And the point being that, um, you know, the incentive structure for politicians is different than the incentive structure for sort of ideologically committed, you know, young writers, um, at an ideologically committed magazine like National Review. Um, um, people like me wouldn't pick the careers that we picked if we weren't sort of a little weird about, um, you know, sort of ideological purity stuff, right? So I get that. I get that that's the nature of politics. But like, I'm not just talking about politicians here either. I'm talking about a lot of journalist types, a lot of TV you know, personalities, um, that I've known over the years. And I'll give you an example. You know, my wife had, um, a great job working for a politician and, um, still has a great relationship, you know, with Nikki Haley. And that's, that's great. But like, you know, she made a choice saying I can't write pro Trump stump speeches for the next year. And so had a parting of ways, you know, she just made a principled decision. Um, and she always wanted to work on a presidential campaign. She still would love to work on a presidential campaign, but you know, she just said, you know, this, this goes farther than I can go. Um, I made all sorts like it all worked out pretty well for me. So I'm not like, I'm not saying I'm not complaining in that sense, you know, uh, dispatch is going great. Um, I've landed on my feet. That's all fine. But I took a lot of risks in, you know, in, over the last five years where I didn't know how it was going to land. I didn't know how things were going to work out. Um, I got a lot of detractors out there who think I've done everything I've done for the last, you know, half decade for the money. And I can just tell you, you're either wrong or you're lying because I was there and you weren't. Um, 
but like I refuse again, I'm not trying to be some righteous dude here, but I'm just my just my point is is like I care a lot about my career. I care about a lot about providing for my family and all this kind of stuff. Um why is it that um it's incumbent upon me to give everybody who I'm not talking about the people who are just wrong, right? Who just got caught up and sincerely um, believed all of the nonsense over the last six or seven years. I'm talking about the people who knew better and went anyway. And um, I understand people should have grace in their heart. I try really hard. I'm, I'm trying so much harder to be a nice and decent person um, than I used to. But I just, this is like, this is the thing I get hung up on is like, I took risks. I lost friends, all this kind of stuff, because there was, there was a direction I would not go. And other people who are willing to go that way, um, now that they're realizing either that was a mistake or they're just realizing that like they've squeezed all they can squeeze out of the Trump garbage, they're reverting back to a different model. And it's just, it's, it's just sometimes I'm not, I don't want to name specific people, but it's just sometimes sticks in my craw, you know, that like, um, even though I, again, I think analytically and politically, the smart thing to do is sort of have a Lincoln-esque, um, you know, with magnanimity towards all um, approach. Um, but it's on a personal level, it's just kind of difficult. Um, I mean, I know, I know some think tank types uh, at uh, other think tanks, you know, who expressly embraced dishonesty and lying um, as a political necessity. And I'm supposed to just be like, oh, well, that was, you know, that's what the times required and you made a mistake and all is forgiven and I'm going to take you seriously now. I can't, I can't do that. And, or at least I struggle to do that. Um, anyway, long, long rant over, I guess. Um, I guess, well, I don't know. One last thing on this point. You know, uh, a year ago, I don't know, a year and a half ago, shortly after, I think it was shortly after the January 6th riots, um, there was this big, when I say big, I should say more, there was this intense but fairly small <laughs> um, debate uh, where the Bulwark guys were sort of at the forefront of this argument about how, whether or not we should burn it all down, like burn the, the, the it being the GOP. And I took the position, David French took the position. Um, I can't remember else, who else. I, I'm sure, pretty sure some of the guys at NR, to be sure. Um, I just can't remember. I'm sure pretty much all the guys at NR took our position. I'm just not sure if they, how much they wrote about it. But like, anyway, my position, David's position was, uh, the whole question is moot and pointless because no one, you know, who thinks the GOP should be burnt down is in a position um, where they can actually accomplish that. So, you know, like, let's not be grandiose. And, um, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's one of these sort of arguments that's fun to have, but, um, ultimately irrelevant because, you know, we can't actually accomplish the thing that, you know, or you can't, can't accomplish the thing that you're arguing for. Um, but it does raise this other question. I've been thinking about writing about, but I'm so freaking tired of writing about the Trump stuff. Um, 
but it does raise this question of like, we can't burn it down. Um, but what about letting it burn? Right. Because like, uh, there is still a non-trivial chance that the GOP just destroys itself if it doesn't. I mean, I mostly think that the GOP is healing and it's on a better trajectory right now than it's been in years and years and years. But then when you look at like this thing in Cochise County in Arizona, um, you know, for those of you who haven't followed this just very quickly, it's just so, so pristinely, incandescently dumb. It's just a little shiny jewel of jackassery. Um, and I have not seen the news this morning. It may have been rectified. I think this has to be rectified by today or it's going to happen. But the gist of it is, is that the election board in Cochise County, which is a very Republican county, um, has refused to certify its election, even though they say there was no fraud um, and no malfeasance or misfeasance or whatever um, in Cochise County. They are refusing, at least as of yesterday, to uh, um, certify their votes as a protest over the way Maricopa County handled its votes or its election. Now, I have seen no evidence. Sorry, Carrie Lake is is a demagogue and a liar. Um, I've seen no evidence that other than the stupid printing error screw up and a couple of things like that um, in Maricopa, uh, that anything was truly awry or illegitimate about um, uh, the voting in Maricopa County. Uh, no one was disenfranchised. This is ultimately supervised by Republicans. You know, Doug Ducey, who I think is one of the best governors in the country. Um, the Secretary of State is a governor, is a Republican. Um, and um, there's just no evidence that um, uh, the election was stolen. And, but Cochise election board people think otherwise. And so they are refusing to certify their votes as a way to sort of uh, send a signal um, to somebody, the establishment. And there are these quotes from uh, uh, some of the officials in Cochise County talking about how, you know, you know, the establishment can't keep kicking us around anymore and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, um, um, the world doesn't spend a huge amount of time thinking about Cochise County. That doesn't mean Cochise County... Arizona is being oppressed or or kept down or being denied a warm water port on the Aegean or whatever. But the true glorious stupidity of all of this is that a Republican won in Cochise County in the in the district that Cochise County is part of by something like uh, forty five hundred votes, but won Cochise County by like fourteen thousand votes. So if Cochise County does not certify its votes, this Republican congressman will lose and a Democrat will win. And it is such a perfect, almost like, an, I don't know, who's a good, you know, agitprop playwright? I don't know, is it like an Ibsen play or something of, of stupidity, um, of sort of, uh, you know, punching yourself as hard as you can in the groin until you get what you want. Um, and there's, 
there's no reason to be too confident that this kind of stuff won't continue with Republicans. Um, Newt Gingrich, talk about somebody I have a real hard time sort of forgetting, I mean, forgiving, um, along the lines we were talking about before, has this op-ed they were talking all about on Morning Joe, and I figured, all right, I'll go look at it. It's a really, I mean, it's, it's a, it's significant because Newt is telling Republicans to get their act together. It is pathetic in the sense that, you know, Trump is not even mentioned, um, the stupidity of Republicans is not even mentioned. Um, it's all, you know, you've underestimated Joe Biden. Um, get your act together um, without any concessions about what getting your act together would actually look like, perhaps because Newt has been a cheerleader of the Asininity Caucus in the GOP for a while now. So anyway, uh, it's a you know it's a sign that the GOP is healing that Newt feels like he has clearance to write something like that, but you know um, it's just hard to take seriously on the merits. Okay, uh, since I don't know how graceful Adam's edit was, I got a couple of urgent phone calls that I had to deal with, so I apologize if I forgot where I was. Let's move on. Uh, I don't need to talk about Newt anymore. So I haven't figured out what I'm going to write about today. I think I've been, I just finally started this uh, economist podcast about China. It's called Drum Tower. Um, it's okay. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the people doing it are smart and all that. Um, but the first episode, um, you know, it's interesting because it, it, it jives with something I've been, oh, I've been writing about for a long time, but I've been writing about a bit lately. Uh, you know, China likes to say that, um, um, you know, the universal values are a myth, that they're really just uh, Western values um, and beneath the Western values veneer, it is raw power politics. And the quote unquote liberal order is really just a self-serving um, regime for the benefit of the United States and Western Europe. And it is, you know, as these guys keep saying on the Economist podcast, um, apparently quoting Chinese people, Chinese officials, it is racist to expect China to behave according to uh, these these Western cultural norms. And I think the whole thing is interesting. I think it's particularly interesting when they say that it is racist to say that these values should apply to China. Specifically, like they think it is racist to expect there to be uh, honest government where contracts are in public view where things go up to proper bidding, where the public can see how things were done, where courts are transparent and neutral, and where officials don't take bribes, that it's, that is a racist Western cultural imposition. And um, so there are a couple of things about that. First of all, the whole bleeding about racism thing is a Western cultural import. I'm not saying that Complaining about racism is inherently wrong. I complain about racism all the time. But uh, concern with racism is itself something that comes out of the backlash against colonialism and all these kinds of things it is deeply wrapped up in all sorts of Western notions. And it is not an argument that the Chinese actually would use domestically um, because the Chinese... Communist Party is profoundly racist. 
it's profoundly bigoted. It practices Han supremacy, right? So it is, it's one of these examples where like non-democratic powers know how to push the buttons of the West to make them feel guilty about themselves. But uh, it's not actually reflective of what Chinese actual values are. And the idea that the Chinese Communist Party is the sole authentic voice of what true Chinese values are or what true, uh, what the true essence of, um, of, of what the Chinese nation believes, that too is kind of a Western idea that, you know, the sort of Marxist one party or Leninist one party system, uh, that does not arise, you know, organically from within Chinese tradition. That's a cultural import as well. And more importantly, it's all BS. This is just simply a um, attempt to justify the Chinese Communist Party's rule over China. Basically, the charge that they're making about the liberal international order is better applied to the rule of the Chinese Communist, Communist Party over China. I think it's interesting how the West really kind of freaks out about, or I shouldn't say the West, people in the West who talk about these kinds of things, uh, which is a very rarefied group, get really nervous and defensive when they um, talk about, when people accuse them of trying to impose Western values. Um, like, that would be the worst thing in the world. Um, but the real question is, are these values correct? Are they right? Forget their origin, right? You know, I think you could probably rummage around in Chinese or African or, or Indian history and find uh, intellectual precedent and support for most of the things that we call Western values in, the con in this context. Um, you know, I'm not talking about Christianity stuff. I'm talking about like rule of law, free speech, um, property rights, all those kinds of things. But regardless, regardless of whether they're universal and regardless, like calling them Western is a way to delegitimize them, you know, uh, to relativize them. And calling them universal is a way to um, hide the real argument, hide the ball of the real argument, which is that they're better because they work because they produce outcomes that are more desirable, that are more just. You know, the idea that, like, so it's interesting, this correspondent on this Economist podcast, she says, you know, this idea that the, that anybody who wants free speech is um, sort of, a, you know, a pus puppet of the West is sort of nonsense. A lot of the people who want free speech want free speech because they want to be able to point to corruption or shoddy building practices that are getting people killed or toxic waste that's being dumped in people's lakes. And they're not allowed to say anything publicly about it to get these problems redressed. Now, I think free speech is as, as, the, as all of these highfalutin and glorious things about it, but it's also a really helpful way to run a society because you get, it helps a society um, self-correct and fix itself, right? And, and, and point out problems. If you tell everybody that, if you, if you work on the principle that anybody, anybody who is uh, pointing out inconvenient or bad things about 
the functioning of government in China is a traitor or a Western stooge, you're going to have a lot of problems go unaddressed. It's really just that sort of simple. And like uh, this other guy who's on the podcast, he says, you know, I don't want to mangle the anecdote because it's really terrible. But um, there was a Chinese woman who saw um, a neighbor commit suicide because of the COVID lockdown stuff. And the neighbor was just simply told by officials, this didn't happen. You didn't see it. Never mention it again. And she was said something along the lines of, you know, you, I understand about, you know, the limits of political expression and whatever, but it, there's a problem living in a society where you're, where the state can tell you, you didn't see what you saw. And, um, wherever that point originates, whatever its etymology, whatever its rich intellectual histories going history, going back to Diogenes or whoever, who gives a rat's ass? It's just a really important point. And, you know, the funny thing is, is like China would not be as prosperous as it is today, even though, you know, it's got real economic problems. If it hadn't stolen, borrowed, copied a lot of the best practices from the West, um, you know, in terms of everything from, you know, structuring its military to, you know, all sorts of technology to, um, you know, imposition of markets and trading and all that kind of thing. And that, a lot of that stuff is, you know, of a piece with these other, you know, we call them universal, you know, values. It's just, these are practices that work. Um, and they, and, and when I say work, I'm not giving into pure instrumentalism or, or philosophical pragmatism or anything like that, because, you know, part of my definition of working is, is it just, is it morally right? Anyway, so I think it's a really sort of interesting, it's an interesting PR tactic by the PRC, and it's an interesting debate, but it misses this sort of more fundamental, you know, truth, which is that regardless of who discovered them or who first articulated them or who first implemented them, there are cer certain rules that are morally superior to the alternatives to those rules. Thou shalt not murder, right? I mean, that's in, uh, it's pretty early in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's in lots of other traditions. Very few states exist that have ever existed where there isn't um, a considerable regulation of the practice of homicide. Um, you know, this is Max Weber's uh, thesis about the state is a, the, the defining feature of the state is its monopoly on violence. Um, there are all sorts of interesting things you can say about all this, all that kind of stuff. But I think that generally speaking, most reasonable people all around the world, uh, the global south, west, east, uh, capitalist, Marxist, whatever, most people think murder is wrong and that it's a good to have a rule that codifies the view that murder is wrong. Is that a universal value? I'm fine with calling it one, but my point is it's a correct value. It's a value that works on, uh, you know, on every level. And uh, the Chinese government doesn't really follow that principle. It murders its own people. Or at the very least, it commits negligent homicide quite often against its own people. Certainly Russia murders lots of its own people. North Korea murders lots of its own people. To hide behind the skirts of sort of 
post-colonial Western theory and say it's racist to say a system that embraces that point of view is worse and is operating on worse values um, doesn't really go- carry much water with me. It's it's a dumb, it's a it's a non-responsive defense. Anyway, I think I'm going to write about that just because I don't want to write about domestic politics. So I apologize to any GFA reader who um, uh, feels like I should have issued a spoiler alert or anything like that. Lastly, lots of great feedback on on the dog episode um, with Alexandra Horowitz. I don't think anybody needs to anybody surprised um, to find out that I'm I'm really interested in the dog stuff. We had some audio connectivity problems. Um, what happens sometimes if someone can't use headphones for technical reasons or whatever, you have to turn off this um, echo can. You have to turn on this echo cancellation thing in our software. Um, and basically, this is the thing that like so that my voice, when it comes out of the speaker on the other end, doesn't play back into the microphone, so it, it bounces around and makes an echo thing. And that means you can't, you have to be much more careful about crosstalk um, or interrupting, because it just kind of like scrambles everything. And so I would love to have her back on when we can have um, a more fruitful conversation. There are a bunch of things I wanted to follow up on. Uh, for example, I had, I had sort of prefaced my remarks about Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer guy, that there were a lot of problems with the dude, but he was right about how most dog behavior problems are actually um, because of lack of exercise, or, or as Horowitz put it, um, they're really owner problems. But she clearly, I mean, I saw her face, she clearly doesn't, she, she clearly has views. I don't want to like get out over my skis on this, but she clearly, it seemed to me, she clearly has views that go further about Caesar Milan. I, I really should have followed up and asked her about that. And sort of like, I, you know, I ended the rat episode by saying, damn it, now I got to get a rat geneticist. I think I still need to get a dog geneticist back on here. I did some of this talk with Razib Khan and, and that was great, but like, um, I just need more. And, um, and I was straining so hard not to just talk, talk constantly about my own dogs, which is a, a huge problem. And there's another thing which we should have talked about is like, why is it that humans are so, not all humans, because I hear from a lot of you saying, why do you talk about dogs at all? Um, and it good cause I gotta be me. Um, but, um, you know, it's an, you know, it's, it's an interesting evolutionary thing. What is it that dogs bring out in us? Um, you know, dogs in some ways, certainly certain breeds are sort of bred to look like babies. And I, I and I'm not saying that dogs are babies and they're not our children. And I try really hard not to use that kind of language. It's funny, just this morning, John Pedard's texted me to ask me why I refer to myself as thumb guy in, in Pippa's tweets, morning tweets. And I explained to him is that I, I try really hard um, in all those dog tweets on Twitter not to talk about my dogs as if they're my kids or talk about or have the dogs talk about my wife and I as if we're their parents. Because I think that is a bad uh, category error. Um, and as one of the downsides of dog ownership is the number of people who think that their dogs are a replacement for kids. Kid, human kids are better than dogs and cats. Um, and I'm very pro baby. Um, if you were on the fence and you can get knocked over by the feather of my opinion, um, into the pro baby camp, you should have babies. Um, you know, subject to the the necessities and context of your own lives. But all things being equal, more babies are good. Um, 
But anyway, uh, dogs are, you know, those big round eyes, sort of like news anchors look a lot like babies. And what I mean by that is there's a certain symmetry, bigger than normal eyes. Uh, there's a, there's a whole science to it. It's like, uh, like that, that tricks our brains into being more affectionate. And I don't think that explains everything, but it's part of it. And, um, be interesting to hear what she has to say about it. My own view, which I've written about a few times about why I, you know, people ask me, why are you so into the dog stuff? That's not really the right question because I'd be into the dog stuff regardless. It's why am I so publicly into the dog stuff? And part of it is, I think dogs are fun to write about. Um, and part of it is, you know, it's a fairly harmless form of, of pandering to the audience because people like to read about dogs. I wrote a piece, you know, one of the first pieces I ever got published. I shouldn't say one of the first. Um, one of the, well, it's one of the first 10 or so, 15 or so. First piece I ever wrote for Slate, or second piece I wrote for Slate. Michael Kinsley asked me um, what I wanted to write about, and I wrote this piece. Maybe we can find it for the show notes. Um, there was this big controversy. This is like 98, something like that, where the... American Kennel Club's official book of breeds, I'm trying to remember this right, this was a while ago, um, had to be recalled um, because of protests from Dachshund um, breeders who took offense at the claim that um, Dachshunds weren't the best dogs to have for little for babies in the house and because they're snappers and they'll, they can, you know, they can bite a baby's face. And you should not bite babies' faces. And um, and I remember at the time, the breeders were like, they were throwing around a lot of words, which the press loved to repeat, about doggy racism or canine racism. Um, the idea being that you could make assumptions about certain breeds without knowing the individual dog. And... Um, I should probably, before I tell people about the piece, I should probably go back and read it, make sure it holds up. I do remember, I, I think I got some stuff about pit bulls wrong in it, but this was real, this was ludicrous. You can make all sorts of assumptions about various breeds because breeds were, dog breeds were actually eugenically created in a way that um, humans were not. And in fact, as we sort of noted in the, um, in the conversation, there's a, there's a, deep and really fascinating overlap between the eugenics movement and the dog breeding movement um, in the United States and the UK. And, you know, Francis Galton, who was this brilliant, absolutely brilliant statistician, but also a really prominent sort of eugenic guy and racist, he, he lived happily in both camps. So anyway, I, I think there's how did I get on that thing about the dogs and the racism? Anyway, I've been writing about this stuff a lot. I think about it a lot. Um, but the the main reason for me that I, other than just me, I'm a river to my readers and I deliver to them, unto them what they ask for. Um, uh, one of the reasons why I, I like the dog tweets and talking about dog stuff is I find it to be a total and complete safe harbor from politics I shouldn't say total and complete because some jackasses try to um, it, inject politics into it and it annoys me. But um, I can, you know, it's sort of like sports, right? I'm not a big sports guy. Um, um, but you can talk about sports with people who disagree with you wildly 
on political questions for long periods of time. And I think that like dogs are even more immune to most political stuff um, because they don't care about fame and they don't care about money. And all they want is to spend more time with their pack and enjoy sort of simple pleasures. And uh, anyway, so that's, that's sort of it. And maybe one of these days I, I will write that dog book. So I don't know what the future holds for the podcast. Um, we're going to try and get some stuff in the can. Just stuff is, times are really, really crazy busy. I'm really uh, hoping to sort of get out of 2022 as quickly as possible. Um, um, it's just a lot of stuff with my mom's estate and all that kind of stuff, which is a real drag to deal with. Um, and uh, very much looking forward to going away and, um, um, and getting out of Washington for a little while. And uh, other than that, um, please, please subscribe to the Dispatch if you can. Um, uh, we are going to launch a big sort of, uh, I think it launches today. I got to go check what I'm supposed to be tweeting out there. Um, but um, we're going to do a big uh, push for uh, a new subscription drive um, through the end of 2022. Now is the time to give gift gift subscriptions, which um, we're going to have a program for. If you like the G-File, if you like the French press, if you like Wonderland, if you like uh, capitalism, if you like the sweep, uphill, the current, um, all of these newsletters, I think are worth your typical price of a Substack subscription, but you get them all for the price of one plus a lot more. Plus you help us do more and exciting things and uh, be really grateful if you could do it. And if you can't, because times are tight, I totally understand. Maybe next year, but if you can do it, um, or if you already have and can give a gift of another one to somebody else, uh, we'd really, really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. 